And reason explains to Hermes that all these forms and bodies set up in nature are merely the instruments of its own purpose. And that its purpose is the complete and full discovery of its own unity. Hello, welcome to the Magician and the Fool podcast. This is episode number one. Uh, my name is Dominic, and with me is Janice, my co-host. What this podcast is about, it's a place where we will be discussing the ancient mystery religions of the Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, Persians, ancient philosophy, the spirituality of the Gnostics, Hermetists, Alchemists, and others. I assume we will also touch on Taoism, Buddhism, and the Eastern practices as well, eventually. Does that sound good, Janice? So far, so good. Let's see where it leads us. So, Janice, can you explain the Magician and the Fool cards in the tarot, what those cards mean? Sir, the Fool is the uh, center, which is everywhere, and circumference is nowhere. Uh, the Fool is sort of the, um, the ever-present child for the state of infinite potential, new beginnings. It represents uh, the, you know, the, the beginning of the cycle of initiation, as well as the completion of the entire cycle of initiation. In that sense, it's uh, not unrelated to the Ouroboros. Uh, the magician is the atomic monad. It's the primal principle, the first power. The magician is what sets everything else into motion. Uh, so he's the prime mover. From one come all numbers, out of one came many. So the magician, by implication, emanates all numbers from himself. Uh, whereas the, few, the fool is pure potentiality, the magician is the actuation of that potentiality. However, there's there are also a classic archetypal pair. Typically, in mythology, you may actually find them together. I think maybe the most well-known, mythically speaking, would be maybe uh, the, in the Norse myths, you have Odin and Loki. They're sort of an inseparable pair. One is the magician, the other is the fool, but they both partake of qualities of the other. Mm -hmm. The fool is a magician, and the magician fools people. So there's a sort <laughs> of dissimilar... Yeah, there's a dissimilar similarity and a similar dissimilarity that's going on there that is interesting to explore. You know, the, the fool does not have to obey social mores. It's, he's the outsider because he, he represents the principle of radical inversion. So the fool is the mirror image of the king turned upon itself. The fool is the lord of misrule who rules during the period of Saturnalia as well as on all, all Fool's Day or else April Fool's Day. And so when you're dealing with the fool, when you're dealing with that, you're dealing with the power that enables us to step outside of consensus reality or enables us to sort of transcend the normal roles and societal patterns and rules. So, you know, again, if you go back to Loki, for instance, you see a, a being that, at times as human, at times as animal, at times appears as a as a giant, which is fairly similar to a titan or even 
like archon or demon. Other times it appears as a god. Sometimes it appears, it appears as male. Other times as female. So the, the idea is that the, the fool possesses this shape-shifting transcendence, you know, or the Hayoka uh, clowns of Native American, Plains Native American and Southwest Native American spirituality and myth. They, they occupy a similar position when the dances are going on when the Hayoka come in. They disrupt the natural order of things. Uh, they're disruptive. They walk backward. You know, their, their actions shake up the pattern, the order. But in the incur- with the incursion, incursion of chaos comes novelty. Too much static. When things become too static. They stagnate. The magician is outside of the social order, but in a different way. The magician is the, the, is the outsider that remains on the fringes or edges of the consensus world because the magician has one, one foot in the interior reality of the spirits and gods and demons and everything else, elementals. And the other foot is in the foot of the living, and the magician serves as a bridge between those worlds. However, because the magician has commerce with uh, interior interiority in the way that he does, the magician is always somewhat alien to others. And so because of that, because of that alienness that the magician has, they, they're never fully integrated with the consensus reality. So the magician and the fool are close to each other. They both are outsiders, and they often can take the role of each other as well. It's really a two-faced mystery. It'd be safe to say that we'd both probably play the role of one or the other at different times during our conversation. So Janice is the resident expert here, but I just want to throw it out there at the beginning that you know he definitely doesn't know it all, and I don't want to put all the pressure on him to to be the answer man to answer, you know, everything perfectly. So we're just going to try our best and, and just have a, a friendly conversation about these topics, and hopefully it will be interesting and, and rewarding. Yeah, I prefer the term professional expert. That's me, a professional <laughs> I, Also, I like the term uh, supermaster. Supermaster is a good one. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, those are terms that I like people to use when addressing me. No, but seriously, like... Uh, I think that we would both agree that, A, you need to have a bit of a sense of humor about everything. B, neither one of us is lord or master over anything. You know, heck, we're still learning how to be that over ourselves in our own lives. Oh, absolutely. And so, you know, there's there's this trend these days, you know, to try and seem like a authority on everything. We're kind of taking the opposite approach we are coming right to the front and saying we are not authorities on anything. However, at the same time, with the freedom of the fool, we're both exploring these things. You know, we, we don't, we're not looking to be uh, pundits on our pulpits, uh, lecturing to people, and then offering them our only $300 three-week specialty course and Facebook group teaching you everything we know, plus some extra attic secrets for a nominal bonus charge of 500 extra dollars. We're more interested in getting to the meat and bones of what we find to be enriching and illuminating and sharing that with you, uh, warts and all. So if we have misunderstandings, if you listen to us without a critical ear, you may inherit some of our misunderstandings, which is why we encourage you to 
listen to everything we express, do your own research on the points we bring up, and uh, you know, feel free to contradict us, to argue with us, to tell us we're wrong, tell us we're right. That would be nice too. Yeah, let's are, hear. Us- let's hear more about how we're right. And so that kind of segues in. At the end of the show, I'm going to give the Facebook group and the website. And so definitely, if you want to write in and comment or critique, or if you if you want to set the record straight on anything that we talk about, please do so. Let's let's kind of just touch on our bios real quick, just so people know who they're listening to. So I'll start. My name is Dominic. I've been into this stuff for a few decades now, on and off with variable intensity. I've gone all over the map, and and you have two Janices as far as interests and areas of study. So, I mean, if if anyone's interested, I can always elaborate on myself. But basically, I'm not a not an, not an expert, not a you know philosophy major or a professor. It's definitely a, a part of my life, and I assume you would say the same. Studying this stuff and researching this stuff, there's there's something that calls to us. What would you like to add about yourself before we move on? I've been studying Gnosticism, Hermitism, Neoplatonism. I've also studied um, shamanism, Western mystery tradition in general. I've also studied uh, certain initiatory spiritist uh, paths. My background is theoretical, but it's also practical, I guess I would say. I think that ideally we should strive to have a balance between both, and that's where I'm coming from. But one thing I think the modern uh, world is lacking in in this regard is humility and that's um that's i strive for humility in my practices i strive for humility when sharing anything with anyone but i have invested a lot of time effort energy attention attention and intention in in this Mm -hmm. and we've known each other since high school and now we're pushing 40 so well, I'm not pushing 40. I'm well, not, but you are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you're right behind me. But we've known each other for many years, and the entire time we've known each other, we've been into this stuff and doing this stuff. You definitely more so than me, but uh, we've both been in it for a while. So hopefully we have something interesting to share. Yeah, it's, it's true. We've known each other since we were very young. And, um, you know, in school... In school, my friends actually used to uh, make fun of me because of my obsession with magic, even as a teenager. Uh, we used to go off to uh, clearings in the woods and stuff. This is pre-internet people. This is where, you know, where that we're actually pre-internet generation, where the tail end of Generation X, I guess they call us. You know, we used to go out in the woods, do magical rituals in the woods, all kinds of things, uh, did shamanic stuff. You know, explore the world of entheogens. I used to sit on a lunch break, 15th spell book, you know, casting spells, you know, at lunchtime. You used, to do, you used to do tarot readings for people at school, do people's horoscope, guess people's <laughs> signs, just walking down the hall and getting them right almost every time somehow. <laughs> I guess that's true. Uh, so just a, an apology in advance. I'm new to podcasting. And so there might be some sound quality issues, technical difficulties. I did tell my kids to be quiet, so that means that they will definitely not be quiet. So there there might be some of that to deal with, but I assume it will only get better as we move along and get more experience doing this. It's easy to kind of sit and, and just 
try to learn it all, but it seems like if you do that you'll you'll never you'll never start. So I think it's a good idea just to go forward and and do it and then improve as we go. This episode and then in the following episodes we'll be covering cosmologies. So we're starting at the beginning and creating a foundation because all the different systems we're going to talk about eventually, a lot of it, it's based on the cosmology. So depending on what the cosmology says is going to kind of be how the system plays out. So I'm going to start with classical Platonism. And in researching classical Platonism, I found that it was pretty difficult to find stuff that wasn't intermixed with Neoplatonism. A lot of the sources online and in books, there's there's a lot of mixing of the Neoplatonism and, and the Classical Platonism, and I really had to work to kind of parse out the, the Classical Platonism. This is from the Timaeus, the information I'm working from. And the Timaeus, Plato calls the cosmology in the Timaeus a likely account, or the most probable account. So he's leaving the door opened for people like Plotinus and Proclus later, because he's not saying this stuff is set in stone. He's definitely coming, coming at it from, hey, this is just basically our best guess based on the information we have available. So, which is a smart move. And I think it's worthy to note that Timaeus is a Pythagorean scholar in Plato's uh, story. So it it almost seems like Plato's cosmology is based on Pythagorean, a Pythagorean foundation. And that's probably true. I mean, would you agree? Well, I think that Iamblichus would certainly agree. And if he would be inclined to see it that way, I would have to defer to his greater wisdom. Yeah, as as we go into it, there's a lot of mathematics and uh, mathematical formulas that, that Plato goes into in the Timaeus, and it gets pretty complicated. So we'll start with the one. So this is the demiurge, the Platonic demiurge, obviously not to be confused with the Gnostic demiurge. I'll try to differentiate that as much much as possible because it can be confusing if you're not um, educated in this subject. So the one is also called the good, and from the good there were emanations. So emanations I've seen described as um, if you have a dark room, you turn the light switch on, and the, the room fills up with light. The light bulb itself would be the one, and the light radiating into the room would be the emanation. So from the yeah, one... Yeah, that's, that's what I've said. Yeah, and it also, also I've heard it seen as like a pond, the pond ripple, the ripples in the pond kind of emanating outward. And when you get into emanations, that's definitely more of a Neoplatonic topic. Plotinus really elaborated on the emanations, so we won't go too deep into that. So nous is the first emanation. It's a very significant emanation. Um, nous is, there's all sorts of definitions, but for all intents and purposes, thought, reason, awareness, understanding. And I believe this would correspond with the Sethian Barbello, which is described as the first thought. Does that sound right to you? Uh, to a degree. I wouldn't, I would say that, so there's a few systems that utilize nous. I would say that, I would be inclined to say that Nous and Anoia are uh, a Sazygi in some of the early Gnostic systems. So, so Nous and Anoia are really two two reflexes of the same aeon. Sazygi. Nous is that, sort of yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
No, says IG, is that more, that's more of a Valentinian idea, and is it truth and mind, or others, is that the combo? Yeah, well, it's, a, well it's, a, it's articulated especially well in the Valentinian theology, uh, for sure. I would say that though the Sazaiji principle is present even prior to the Valentinian material and the teachings of Simon Magus and his, and it's really where you find the pairing, which you're right, is eminently Platonic of mind and thought or nous and anoia. And, you know, of course, when we're talking about nous being thought, we're not really talking about, or nous being mind, we're not really talking about mind in the sense of uh, the regular, daily, you know, discursive, rational mind, but we're talking about a higher level of mind. Right, and we can get into that as well in, in the Hermetic cosmology as well, because that's a big part of that system. So within nous are the forms. So the forms are definitely kind of a trippy idea, and it's definitely hard to wrap your mind around initially. Basically, the forms, from my understanding, are the the forms are reality. What we have in our reality is a flawed version of the forms. The forms are basically the per perfect example of everything that exists in the material world, um, and that's objects as well as things like feelings. So anger, beauty, chair, apple are common examples. There are perfect examples of these in the forms, and what we have in reality are a mirror image but a flawed mirror image and i like to think of the forms from what i've what i understand of them as computer code not placed into a program and what we have in reality is the code all put together into a program where they're interacting and that's when you have things like um you know like an apple which would rot in reality but in the forms it wouldn't it wouldn't do that because it doesn't it's not interacting in the same way if that makes sense um, so I don't know if you want to correct that or add anything to that as far as the forms. The forms are commonly translated as archetypes. Right. Um, and the archetypes were, you know, the, the, the word archetype it was popularized by Jung, of course. Um, and a lot of people try and say that Jung didn't understand what they were and he tried to psychologize um, something that's deeper or, you know, have been turned off by the concept of archetypes because of Jung, but that more relates to people's inability to grasp what Jung was saying, and usually when people bring those arguments to the table, I, it's sort of a red flag to me that they haven't really studied Jung in any depth, because if they did, they would understand that Jung's theory of the archetypes builds directly upon Plato's idea of them. And so the, the Platonic forms are like the the primal archetypes is we're dealing with literally like we're, we're dealing with pure mathesis here, you know, pure, pure number and geometry, but everything in this reality, everything in reality is composed of geometry, you know? So, so any, anywhere you look, geometry is there everywhere you look, geometry is there. So the platonic solids are, are those basis bases of reality that unfold coming afterwards you know they're, they're, they're you could even say they're prior to prior to organic form in a sense because you're dealing with types that are so pure that we're just it's it's entirely number and geometry so it's like we're dealing with the uh like uh like uh, like a vector drawing you know 
the platonic forms are are the the vector the principles that determine the vector matrix of the universe. Okay, moving from the forms, uh, the demiurge creates the world soul or the cosmic soul, and this is where I get a little bit confused because there's a lot of discussion and disagreement on all the all the intricacies and nuance of this from from later commentators and apologists. But it almost seems like the demiurge creates the demiurge, so big D creating the little d in a way. So the world soul was called by one of Plato's students, uh, Xenocrates, X-E-N-O-C-R-A-T-E-S. He called the world soul Zeus, for what that's worth. This was after Plato. So the world soul seems to be, this is where the logos comes in for me, it seems to be an intermediate between the mind and substance, Um the world soul seems to pull from the forms and uses the primordial substance, which is existent simultaneously with the demiurge. Um, it pulls from the forms to create the physical reality. According to Basilides, I found in my research, uh, Nous is the parent of Logos, which is the parent of then some of the emanations like prudence, wisdom, and power. So Basilides is saying that Nous is the parent of Logos, and then it goes to some of the other emanations. What's your opinion on the Logos as it applies to the world soul, at least in the classical Platonic? Plato didn't really talk about the Logos, so just just to make that clear, at least not in this talk. Well, you cut out a little bit there, but I think I heard what most of what you said. So the world soul is a medial principle. The world soul occupies a place between the sublime sort of mentation of the noose and the, uh, you could say, astral and material reality. The, the world right, soul is necessary because there has to be a principle of translation from the immaterial into the material mm-hmm. and back. This principle of translation is where the logos comes in. In the Hermetica, there's a statement, the Logos is common to all, but Nous was set up as a prize for souls. Getting back to that, the, the Logos is distributed through all of rea- throughout all of reality. You know, so, so the logo, there is nowhere where the Logos is not present. Now, it, it means multiple things. Um, you know, it's not dissimilar to the Eastern, say, Om, you know, Omani Padme Hum, you know, the, the primal sound or word or vibration that engendered everything. It's also called the seven-rayed voice in other other areas associated with the Gnostic mystery god Abrasax. Uh, the, the Logos sets reality into motion through rhythm, through vibration, through periodicity. These things are exactly what we also find as defining elements of language. You know, we break sounds up into discrete segments, which we punctuate with silence in order to communicate knowledge to one another. Mankind is the only animal endowed with speech, which, according to hermetic theology, makes him divine, or at least is a hallmark of the divinity within him. I would, I would say that hermetism, being Egyptian theology, also is not necessarily necessarily in denial of the inherent divinity of animals either. Uh, getting back to the Logos, though, the thing to remember, I would say, is that Logos means voice or word. 
rather word, I'm sorry. And it articulates that principle of translation, which is essential to a mediator. It mediates, it, it enables us in our prayers and invocations, which the Logos which Logos also means prayer and invocation. It enables us to enjoin the divinities by using our voice to commune with them, to invoke, to invocate them, to attune ourselves to them. You know, and so we do that and it enables us to experience a sort of oneness and communicate with the gods. So having, having said that, what do you think about the line, and this is from the Salomon transla- translation of the uh, Corpus Hermeticum, that which sees and hears within you is the word of the Lord, and Nous is God the Father. They are not separate from each other, for their union is life. So are they essentially the same? So it seemed like you were saying initially that they were separate, but then I've, I've read in the Corpus Hermeticum that they are the word and the mind are one and the same. Is there any conflict there with what you said? Or? It doesn't say they're one and the same. It's stating that they're that they are one. Okay. I wouldn't say they're not the same, but I wouldn't say they are the same. It comes back down to this: consider how Jesus said that I and my Father are one. Now Jesus is the Logos, so you know, at least within the Christian mysteries, Jesus incarnates the Logos. The, the, is the word ever separate from the mind? How is, is, is any word ever separate from mind? I would say no. Mind and, right. Mind engenders no. word and then brings us back and that word in turn brings us back to mind, recalls mind. You know, depending on what we say, you know, at least true word, true word or holy word, lead us to mind like a shepherd leads their flock to the land where they'll, where they'll graze. That's my understanding of it is word is an emanation from mind, but it is not separate from mind. You could almost say on a personal level, the Logos, it, the logos is a localized hypostasis of noose. Okay, so back to classical Platonism, which doesn't go this deep <laughs> into any of this, but... um as far as the world soul, Plato gives a very complex and confusing mathematical formula and explanation as for the creation of the world soul. And I've dug into that a little bit, and there's commentary from experts on, on all those mathematical formulas and how eventually it leads you to basically the understanding that the world soul equals the movement of the heavens. So... All the, the formula and calculations kind of describe the orbits of the planets and the movements of the stars, and Plato is connecting the world soul with the movement, which is interesting, because I, I read in the Gospel of Thomas a long time ago, and I never quite understood it, and it probably doesn't directly apply here, but there's a line where it's, uh, what is the sign of your father in you? You say to them, it's movement and rest, and... I think earlier you you touched on the kind of the the tempo of of speech and silence, which was interesting, and, and that definitely relates. But I don't know if if that movement and rest. Have you thought about that line from the Gospel of Thomas, or has that ever struck you as odd? That movement and rest line. Or do you have an explanation for it? I don't think I have all the explanations for it. But what I will say is that movement and rest are uh, complementary opposites. You know, and so again. This seems to, this is a theme in Gnosticism. You know, a lot of people, 
accuse Gnosticism of being a uh, dualistic heresy. I would say that that's not totally accurate. Um, the dualism in Gnosticism is often reconciliatory. When you have movement and rest, you're also going back to the primal theology. Um, the rest, and I, I'm, I'm thinking in more platonic terms, I guess, here, but the rest is a state of quiescence, the quiescence of the one. Movement uh, is the activity of the indefinite dyad, which is the number two. The, so the one is the primal father male principle. The two is the primal female or maternal principle. So first you have the one, then the one becomes two, and from the interaction of the two, the ten million things come into being. So you have the, the one is the rest, the two is the motion. The union of the two, union of the two, the union of the father and mother produces the child. So the, the child is the person in whom the motion and rest is. The children of the father, uh, how do you know them through the motion, through the movement and rest? Also in Gnostic, in a Gnostic Christian sense, the rest is the rest we find in the, in the father through the dispensation of the father within us. The movement is the movement of the Holy Spirit, which is the action of Sophia upon the waters of our soul. Speaking of movement and motion and this world soul idea, I also thought about uh, Heraclides' description as the Logos as an everlasting uh -huh. fire. The divine Logos, uh, law of the universe, centers around the idea of this eternal flux, that the universe is always changing and in constant motion. So that seemed appropriate as well. That, and, I, and I think Plato... Was probably had some influence from Heraclitus. Oh, I absolutely think so. I mean, and Heraclitus, his uh, perspective was also influential upon Gnosticism. Again, especially uh, it's it's especially suggestive in Simon Magus's theology. Going back to Simon again, we we do find uh, the idea of the fire philosophy as part of his ideology. I would definitely like to do a, an entire episode on Simon Magus if you're comfortable with that. Yeah, we could do that. The you know the the because the paternal principle in the, in its revealed form is the sort of fiery the monad is fiery you know that's a fiery creative principle and then the, the maternal principle is in, in this the theogony is is watery is is you know the maternal waters and the maternal waters mirror the paternal fire and in their from their union from their union comes the primal human, the, the, the primal man, which is not identical to the physical human being. Okay. And as far as this um, hypostasis, so Plotinus talks about the one, the nous, and the soul. Basilides has God, the mind, nous, and logos. I, I kind of mentioned the Sethian Gnostic, I don't, I don't know about Trinity, maybe the Trinity. There's the, the, the one, then Barbello and logos. How is that uh, different than what we have with the, the classical platonic model um well what i can say is that barbello aeon is certainly described in terms of having a watery equality uh the father is called the calyptos the calyptos meaning the paternal depth or profundity the depth can't be grasped it transcends intellection and comprehension being prior to everything the Barbelo aeon reflects the father and produces the aeons 
from herself. So the the reflection, the barbelo is is that medi- medium by which the reflection occurs, that produces the rest of the upper universe and eventually the y- lower universe. So back to classical Platonism. So this is this is one of the discrepancies in in the Timaeus, and there's all sorts of people that um, critique this point, and it's a huge hole for people like the Gnostics to kind of uh, capitalize on. So when the Demiurge was was creating the material world from the forms, he was creating it from a primordial substance that was it seems to be existent prior to or at least alongside or at least alongside the demiurge and and the platonic demiurge which is like the ultimate god and so the gnostics obviously would say how how would how would you have an architect creating the universe and have him pulling substances that existed outside of him how could that be possible but that's what you get in the timaeus and i've i've read where medieval apologists were saying that yes that's the way it's written in this kind of chronological order, but um, that's just for our human minds so that we can comprehend the process. In reality, all this was happening kind of simultaneously, so there was no demiurge apart from from the elements. They, they emanated from him, and this all kind of happened at once, but Plato put it down in kind of a chronological order the way he did so that we can understand it. It's an interesting concept, this primordial substance. So the Demiurge, the architect, pulls the elements from this substance and kind of separates the elements, fire, air, water, earth. Um, I'll just kind of make this brief. He uses the code found in the forms and the elements to create matter. And when he does that, he also creates time as an image of eternity. So it's it's kind of a mirror image of eternity found in the perfect realm, so time is is created, and it's directly connected, obviously, to the movement and motion of the cosmos, so it's all very intertwined. Plato has humans being created by the gods, so these are gods that are created by the architect, and it's assumed that these gods are just the Greek pantheon of gods, um, and specifically Prometheus, who molds man out of mud, and Athena, breathes life into him. According to, I I did read one book, uh, Plotinus the Platonist, a comparative account of Plato and Plotinus's metaphysics, that the soul, the the soul of man is a part of the the cosmic soul. And you can definitely correct my understanding. But the soul of man is, is a part of the cosmic soul. And so when man was created, he was given kind of the leftovers of this cosmic soul as his soul. And the soul is directly create, uh, connected with the movement of the heavens, which is why we have things like astrology that, that affect human beings. And so in order to kind of overcome this movement of the, of the cosmos within us, we have to really work hard, um, and it can be done, apparently. I don't know if you want to add to that or, or comment on time, how Kronos may fit into things. Creation occurs on more than one level of the universe. So when you're talking about creation on the level of, of noose, it's different than creation on the level on the, on the material level or on the cosmic level. Cause you know, there's, there's 
there's different levels of creation sometimes going on simultaneously, I guess, which is kind of what you were alluding to mm -hmm. earlier with, when you were talking about the simultaneity of the creation process, the various phases being more like overlays or uh, proce processes that were occurring at once rather than, you know, rather than separately or, you know, sequentially. I wouldn't, Right. I also wouldn't necessarily say the sequential unfoldment is inaccurate, but I would rather say that it's only one way of looking at a process that, because it's beyond three dimensions, encompasses uh, all of them. Really, you know, it, you can view it in a variety of a variety of different vantage points, and none of those vantage points are the only way to perceive it, but rather points of ingress to deepen understanding. That said, it's also said that the world soul distributes the forms to the world. So the world soul is almost like a... So in Hermetism, there's this sense of as above, so below. You know, so you have the cosmic human and you have the... You have the cosmic human and then you have the, you know, uh, incarnate human. And the incarnate human is a reflection of the cosmic human. So I would say that in the same sense, the world soul, the world soul is a reflection of the individual soul. The world soul and individual souls are reflexes of each other. So the souls receive from the world soul according to their types. The human soul being a totality within itself is a microcosm within the macrocosm. So it's, it's, it's like a holographic, uh, representation of the greater reality and the, the dist distribution of qualities from the world soul to the individual soul occurs according to that kind of a whole, whole systems distribution rather than like discrete, separate, chaotic, you know, attributes being arbitrarily distributed, uh, without reason. The world soul, through the medial principle of logos, distributes qualities to individuals, uniting parts to wholes by this motion. Now, is it the world soul doing that? Well, I, I guess it would be, but it seems like uh, it kind of uh, had subcontractors involved with the beings that that ruled the planets, and you know, it seemed like the souls, each human human soul, was connected to a planet. I don't know if I'm mixing that up with Neoplatonism or some other systems I was simultaneously studying, but do you know if in Platonism does it talk about classical Platonism about uh, individual uh, gods kind of being in charge of of individual humans as far as their souls being connected to planets and stars? So there's different lines of souls, and they they do they do move along certain qualities. I mean, typically. When we're talking about the world soul and you're talking about, say, the governors, the cosmic governors. So the thing is, because Correct. the world soul contains everything within it, uh, the world soul is sort of like a, uh, as I was describing it as a totality before. So it's a, it is, it, it, it's a totality. It's a sum of consciousness. But at the same time, because it exists on another level, which is prior to or an anterior to the things that come after it, the world soul is a conscious entity in the same way that we're a conscious, we're a conscious union of our cells and our organs and our, 
our blood and our neurons, and these are all different systems. Like our nervous system is separate from our respiratory and circulatory systems. Each one of these systems is autonomous, but works uh, in a synthesis, which is the human body. You know what I'm saying? So in the same right. way, you have to... Homeostasis. Right. So you have to think about the cosmos in the same way. Each one of the components of the cosmos functions as part of a greater system, which in total is an entity. The reason we can look at ourselves and say even that our body is a reflection of that is because we are, you know, in the same way that time is a moving image of eternity, we are a living image of the world soul. So it's, it is not a exact, uh, homological equivocation. Uh, it's more, it's more of an analogical symbiosis that we have with the world soul you know where we we are world souls in miniature but uh, incarnation is an inversion of the soul so because of that uh, we're sort of the world soul but upside down and inside out and in miniature awesome answer when we're talking about the world soul we're talking about the distribution of the forms and the quality so when we were talking about the the forms earlier, you know, there's the platonic forms and then there's the actual archetypes. The archetypes... Well, wouldn't wouldn't the forms be the archetypes or no? The forms are the roots of the archetypes, but the forms, in my understanding, and there's different schools of thought on this, again, I'm not the authority on anything. I also distribute the forms, but the archetypes are those forms. The archetypes are joined to the seven governors of the material realm, the seven governors of the cosmos. So you could think of the world soul like the white light. You could think of the governors or the archons as the white light split into the seven rays or the seven colors of the rainbow or notes of the uh, mu musical scale. These, these, the interaction of these patterns produces the aggregate forms of the material sphere. In the Western mystery tradition, the most one of the more common illustrations of this idea is, uh, you know, for instance, in the Lion of the Sun, you have on the animal plane you have the lion, on the plane of plants you have the sunflower, on the plane of the metals you have gold, you know, other associated with the sun are honey, of course, sunlight, uh, bees, and so on and so forth. You know, these things are all associated with the sun, with the solar light. So it's said that they all share, they all share in the archetype, archetypal potency of the sun. They share, they, they all contain the signature of the sun. The signatures of, uh, and so they all participate collectively in the solar soul. Because the world soul differentiates into seven souls. The symbols and tokens of those souls are distributed throughout nature. So it's said that everything in nature bears the signature of its governing archetype. You know, we're not even getting into what about the hypercosmic logoi, you know, the, the forms and things which are beyond the cosmos that are sewn into the cosmos. But those things, the forms of the stars beyond the cosmos, the Octoad and the Ennead, which enter into the cosmos, uh, via the medium of noose through the world's soul by way of the cosmic governors. So there's a descent 
into the material realm. And there's also a corresponding ascent from the material realm back to the roots. Um, and mankind is a crucial component of that process, which unites the below with the above. And I guess I'll end my point on this. In the Hermetica, you know, it says that the God, gods are nothing but mortal men and men are nothing but mortal gods. And that's a key to that whole process. Well, there you go, folks. The first episode of the Magician and the Fool podcast is all wrapped up. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. There were definitely some audio issues and challenges, but moving forward, I imagine things will only get better. I need to experiment and tweak our audio editor and and just learn how to do that a little bit better, but it's all fun. Moving forward, we will be looking at hermetism and hermeticism, the cosmologies there, and it should be pretty good. If you want to follow us, you can do so on Facebook. Just look us up under The Magician and the Fool podcast. We also have a website, themagicianandthefool.com. Again, I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to follow us and see where this goes. Thanks for listening.